Welcome to the St George's Leeds Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the talk. Shall we pray as we come to God's Word? God, we want to thank you that you are not silent. We thank you that you speak. And I pray that as you speak now, we would hear your voice clearly and well. Would you encourage us? Would you challenge us? And would you cause us to fall more in love with you this evening, we pray. Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Richard, and I'm the curate down the road at Holy Trinity Lane, and it is a pleasure to be able to speak to you this evening. We are continuing through our series in the book of Hebrews, and we'll be exploring the passage that we've just heard that Ian read to us under the title of Jesus, a better saviour. Now, I think over the last few years, our culture has become more and more aware of the fact that we might need saving, or at the very least, we might need a bit of help. Think about the last few years for a moment. We've had COVID. We've got the cost of living crisis. We've got the war in Ukraine. The death of Her Late Majesty the Queen. And many, many more things have between them thrown any sense of certainty or confidence in the future up in the air. Prior to these events, we of course knew that life could be hard and that life could be difficult, but we at least had some confidence that the world would, broadly speaking, continue as we knew it. I'm not sure this is the case any longer. We've been made aware of just how much a luxury planning years ahead really was, and we've been brought back down to earth with a bit of a bump as we begin to operate on a new understanding of the world one that's much more familiar with discomfort, uncertainty, and an awareness of just how small we can seem in the face of big, momentous shifts. It's probably worth noting that whilst that's strange to us, we are a bit late to the party. The majority of people on the planet have been living in that space for a while. Mark Sayers, who's an Australian writer, commentator, and pastor, refers to a time such as this as a grey zone. And he defines a grey zone as a chaotic, confusing, anxious, and complex place filled with change. It is the space between a passing era and a new era forming. I don't know about you, but I think I recognise and can identify with what Mark Sayers is talking about there. It's all this stuff that makes me think that perhaps the idea of a saviour has a bit more cultural capital than it used to. We're more and more aware of the fact that events might take a turn in such a way as to render us helpless. But at this point, we're faced with a question. And the question is, where do people turn in such circumstances? Now, of course, there's many possible answers to that question. Two sprung to mind for me. One option that seems to be increasingly popular is politics. I can't be the only person here who's noticed the heightened profile of our political discourse and political figures in the recent months and years. 
There seems to be an underlying assumption that if we could just get the right government, politicians and policies in place, then all our problems would be solved and all our issues would just go away. Now, I'm not particularly political, but even I can tell you that that just isn't true. Politics is important, and as Christians we should have a healthy interest in it, but no matter how good our politics or politicians are, they'll never be able to save you. A second option is to increasingly rely on ourselves. Lots of commentators observed during the pandemic that people took the opportunity over successive lockdowns to take stock of their lives and to reimagine for themselves what their life could and should be. One example of this played out in relation to people's working lives. Firstly, we saw this idea of the great resignation where large numbers of people realised they didn't want to be doing jobs that didn't make them happy. And then following that more recently, we saw the idea of quiet quitting where large groups of people decided to stop going above and beyond in their working lives and instead they chose to do strictly what's required of them. Now, I'm not here to tell you whether that's good or bad. The main thing I want to say in relation to that is to notice the underlying assumption beneath all of that. And the underlying idea is that actually my life and my happiness are ultimately in my hands. I can change and manoeuvre my circumstances away from what I don't want them to be and towards what I do want them to be. I hate to break it to you, but this doesn't work either. Firstly, very few people actually have the agency and power to be able to make those kinds of changes in their lives. And even when they do, they've no way of guaranteeing that what they think they want now is actually what's best for them. Neither can they guarantee that what they want now is the same as what they'll want in 5, 10, 15 or 20 years from now. We find ourselves in a position where we know that some things are beyond our control and on the whole, we have no idea how to address them. We need a saviour. And what's more, we need one that's better than the ones we're currently looking to. This is where our passage from Hebrews comes in. And we're going to explore it under three headings. So we're going to find out, firstly, about the victory of Jesus. Secondly, we're going to look at the sympathy of Jesus. And thirdly, we're going to look at access to God. So firstly then, the victory of Jesus. The eagle-eyed among you may well have noticed that our passage this evening starts with a therefore. And if you've been here for the last few weeks, you'll know from Eve's sermons on Hebrews that when we see a therefore in the Bible, we need to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? The easiest way to do this is to look at what comes immediately before it, as usually the therefore is linking what's before it with what's after. In this case, what, be- what comes before our therefore is Hebrews chapter 4 in which the author speaks of the rest that God gives. Now, rest is one of the ways that the Bible speaks about eternity. And I really like this idea of talking about eternity, as it seems to me that the idea of rest is a really good counter to the last few years in terms of the demanding and exhausting things that we've just explored. However, it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that God speaks in ways that comfort us. As in Hebrews 4.13, it says that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before him. God 
knows everything. He knows the world we live in, and he knows our hearts, which means he knows how best to speak to us at the most deep and intimate levels. Therefore, he knows that politics can't save us, and he knows that we can't save ourselves. He knows that the only way that we can be saved from all that troubles us, and the only way in which we can enter into his rest, is through his son, Jesus. It's him who saves us, and it is Jesus who is our better saviour. So in Hebrews 4.14, we see that Jesus has ascended into heaven. For some here this evening, we might not know all that much about the ascension, or if we do, it seems like a bit of a random extra to the really core parts of Jesus' life here on earth. For example, the incarnation is a fairly well-known part of Jesus' life. That's the bit where God became man in Jesus. He walked this earth and became familiar with the messiness and brokenness of human existence. We celebrate this at Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Then there's the crucifixion. That's the part where Jesus died on the cross to take away the sins of the world, including the sins of you and of me. We remember that on Good Friday. Thirdly, there's the resurrection when Jesus actually physically and bodily rose from the dead and in doing so broke the power of death and evil and ushered in the beginning of God's new kingdom. And we celebrate this on Easter Sunday. Now, most people, if they have an understanding of the Christian gospel, it tends to stop here. Now, let's be clear. So far, that's an amazing story. It's one of God becoming man, taking the punishment our sins deserved and then coming back from the dead in order to break the power of death once and for all, in order to win eternity in God's presence for all who put their trust in Jesus. If you like the sound of this and you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus and you want to do so this evening, please do come and talk to me or Hannah or Miriam afterwards and we would love to talk to you more about that. However, all of that amazing stuff stops short of the ascension. This is the bit after Jesus' resurrection where Jesus goes up to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. Now that may sound odd, but it's really important. The reason it's important is because it's the ascension that signifies the completeness of Jesus' victory over sin and death. While Jesus was living, dying and rising, he still had stuff to do here on earth. However, the ascension is the point at which Jesus has done all that is needed to bring salvation. The Bible talks about how Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And that sitting down language, it's significant because it speaks of someone who's finished their work and is now taking a seat after they've completed their work. It's the ascension more than any other aspect of Jesus' life that signifies his victory and completion of all that he came to do. This is why it's so important. And this is why I think it's such a shame that we've lost our focus on it. Further, I think we see this loss of focus play out in how we see the world operate. So much of our engagement with the world is steeped in uncertainty as what's going to happen next. Now, obviously, to a certain extent, this is to be expected because there are all sorts of ways in which political and world events might play out. And Christians should have an interest in those if we're to properly care for the world God created. 
However, at the same time as this, as Christians, we should be marked with a confidence that comes from the knowledge that Jesus has already done all that is needed to save the world and his people. When we lose sight of the ascension, we lose sight of this fact. Now, this isn't an excuse to just ignore the difficulty and problems that are in the world and to just focus on eternity with no focus on now. We need to work for truth and justice in the here and now, but the framework within which we do that is important. The world does it on the basis of having no ultimate hope or confidence in the triumph of good over evil. It's all based on human activity with no guarantee of whether it will actually pay off or not. As Christians, we have a different story to tell of a future and certain hope that serves as our motivation for living boldly and in ways that please God in the here and now. We are living in a world that is crying out for the confidence and completeness that the ascension of Jesus brings. As the church, it's our job to communicate that clearly and well. So in verse 14, we learn about the victory of Jesus. In verse 15, we move on to the sympathy of Jesus. You see, this ascension stuff is really cool and it's amazing, but it can seem quite far off and quite distant. And it can kind of paint God as up in the clouds over there somewhere. However, verse 15 of our passage deals with that when it says that we have a high priest who is able to feel sympathy for our weaknesses and who has been tempted in every way. Now, this high priest language is another way of referring to Jesus. I'm not going to dwell on it now. I'm going to leave that uh, to Josh next week, who um, I'm sure will do a much better and much fuller job of exploring uh, Jesus as high priest with you. Instead, what I want to do is focus on the fact that Jesus sympathizes with what we're going through and knows our temptations. Jesus, the Son of God, sympathizes and knows our temptations. This is incredible. There is no other faith or religion that teaches this about its God. Quite often, people have this idea of God being some kind of distant divine being who stays far off and watches from a distance. But this is not the picture we get from Christianity. In Christianity, God can sympathize with our weaknesses because in Jesus, he's been tempted. For those of us who maybe aren't sure about this, these temptations appear in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and it tells the story of how Jesus was tempted. Now, there's a whole talk that could be done just on the temptations of Jesus, and I'm not going to try and do that now, but it is worth saying that in that story, we see that the devil comes alongside Jesus and tries to undermine God's will and plan for Jesus' life through cunning, deceit, and lies. Now, while the specific temptations we face may well be different to the ones Jesus faced, the devil uses the same tactics with us, too. We see this in the Garden of Eden when the devil tempts Adam and Eve by saying, did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? This is how we get tempted. We might hear that still, small, nagging voice that causes us to doubt things that God has clearly instructed and required of us. For example, it might be something like, did Jesus really say that you shouldn't look at someone else lustfully? Or does the Bible really say that you shouldn't be getting drunk? Or is God really bothered if you gossip and speak badly about people when they're not even there? 
The fact is we all have our own temptations that we find it really hard not to give in to. However, we're not on our own in this. Jesus is with us in these things because he's faced temptation too. However, alongside this similarity, there's also a huge difference. Because Jesus doesn't just sympathize with us, but as, our, as Hebrews 4.15 says, he faced those things, but he didn't give in to them. Jesus was without sin. And now I don't know about you, but that's certainly not true of me. I fall short and give in to temptation regularly. So unlike Jesus, I need to regularly repent and turn from my sin and instead turn to him. That is true for all of us. However, the thing about this is that God loves to forgive. So as soon as we come to him and as soon as we repent, as soon as we say sorry, he forgives. He doesn't lord it over us. He doesn't make us feel bad about it. Instead, he welcomes us back with love, mercy and grace. It is the sinlessness of Jesus that enables this to happen. This is because by living a perfect life, he lives the life that we could never have lived. However, in his love, he then dies the death that we deserved and allows all who trust in him to have the access to God that his perfect life achieved. This is an amazing truth that is only made possible by the fact that Jesus came into the mess of the world and became acquainted with it so that he could sympathize with us and ultimately release us from it. So we've had the victory of Jesus. We've had the sympathy of Jesus. And so finally, we move on to access to God. So Hebrews 4.16 begins by saying, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. We can do this because of what we've heard in our previous two points. It all builds on top of one another. Jesus won the victory as demonstrated in his ascension and then granted us access to the Father by sympathizing with us to the point of swapping places with us so that he can take the punishment that we deserve. This is amazing. Because of what Jesus has done for us as a free, undeserved gift, we can approach God's throne of grace. However, this verse doesn't just say that. It goes further by saying what we can come to God's throne of grace for. It says we can come to receive mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. This is also linked to the previous verses. The mercy we receive is for the times we've been unlike Jesus and given into temptation, while the grace is the forgiveness and ultimate victory we get to share in that is found in Jesus' ascension. So then the question is, if we have this, how do we access the throne of grace? I don't know about you, it sounds like a very abstract concept that's hard to pin down. How do we access the throne of grace? For a number of commentators that I read, the answer to this question of access is found in one word, prayer. The way that we access God the Father for the mercy and grace that we need is through prayer. Now, I think for a lot of seasoned Christians, this answer might seem pretty obvious. However, I don't know about you, but I think quite often there can be a disconnect between our words and our actions. What we say we believe about the importance of prayer and what our actions demonstrate can often be two different things. I have a sneaking suspicion, I know this is true of me, that you know, we're totally on board with the idea of Jesus' victory, 
and we're totally on board with the idea of Jesus sympathizing with our temptations, and we're even on board with the idea of prayer being important. However, I imagine that for many of us, myself included, is that where we fall short is at the point of actually coming to commit regularly to coming to God in prayer for ourselves, for others, and for the world around us. Now, this is a shame because following Jesus is not actually about mentally agreeing to a load of propositions about God. It's about a relationship with him. He wants us to come to him in prayer. And yet, it's quite often the case in my life, and I'm sure in many of the others as well, we, we rarely do that. Now, this is strange because we don't accept this in any other relationship we have, particularly close relationships. For those of you who don't know, I'm married, and if I were to say that I believe that talking to my wife is a good idea, but never actually did it, that would result in a pretty poor relationship between us and most likely a failed marriage. I also imagine, and I hope actually, that anyone who knew me well enough to know that that's what my marriage looked like would sit me down and have some pretty strong words with me and say how I need to change so I'm not just saying the right stuff, but I'm actually doing it two. I think the same is true with our prayer lives. It's not enough to simply say that we think it's a good idea. We need to prioritize it. Accessing God through prayer is something Jesus has won for us and we need to make use of it. This brings us back to where we started in terms of who our saviour is. While many Christians say Jesus is the saviour, the lack of prayer in their life might indicate that they're relying on something other than him for what they need. Listen to this quote from a theologian by P.T. Forsyth, and I want to make clear before I read it that this quote cut me to the core. So if you struggle with this, you're not on your own. Listen to this. When we do not give time each day to earnest and believing prayer, we're saying that we can cope with life without divine aid. It's human arrogance at its worst. That cut me quite deep. He goes on to say later, to be prayerless is to be guilty of the worst form of practical atheism. We're saying that we believe in God, but we can do without him. I have a love-hate relationship with these quotes. I hate it because it makes me feel uncomfortable and very much seen. However, I love it because I think it's true. The extent to which we believe Jesus is our saviour is the same as the extent to which we pray. The extent to which we believe Jesus is our saviour is the same as the extent to which we pray. We might claim to believe that Jesus is our saviour, yet operate as if we actually believe that we save ourselves. We might claim to believe Jesus is our saviour while actually relying almost entirely on, on politics or activism to see the world as we want it to be. We might claim Jesus is our saviour while actually relying on family, friends, partners or spouses to solve all our problems and fix everything. Let me be clear, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. Some of them are good. Some of them are really good. But they can't save you. Only Jesus can do that. What's more, he already has. As Christians, we need to remember that. We need to rely on that. 
And we need to regularly and repeatedly pray to the one who has already done all that needs to be done to save. Thank you for listening to the St. George's Lead Sermon Podcast. For more talks or information, visit stgs.org.uk.